Beloved Robert Murray McShane said, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing else. Charles Spurgeon said, The way of determining if you're a good soldier is to go to battle. The Apostle Paul was a good soldier. He did indeed go to battle. If you open your Bibles for a moment to 2 Timothy 4, as Paul is writing from his second Roman imprisonment, awaiting execution, this is what he said in verses 6 through 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Beloved, when you are, when you and I are fighting the holy war, not a physical war, it's not a war against flesh and blood, but when we are fighting the holy war, we need to be brave, we need to be strong, we need to be well equipped with the armor of God, the spiritual armor of God that God describes in Ephesians chapter 6. And we know that the armor of God, the six pieces of the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. These elements of the armor of God are galvanized. They are electrified. They are fired through communion with God in prayer. We need, beloved, prayer to keep healthy and strong with everything necessary to fight the good fight, like the apostle Paul. Beloved, Listen as I read Ephesians chapter 6, and if you're in Timothy, you can flip over to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Our passage this morning is verses 19 and 20. Our verses 19 and 20 is verses 19 and 20, but I will begin reading in verse 18 to set the context. In Ephesians 6, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf so that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains so that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. The Apostle Paul closes this great letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus with a call to prayer. And that's the sermon title this morning, A Call to Prayer, Part 2. This mighty letter, which began on the mountaintops of great doctrines, ends on its knees in prayer. In verse 18, we see the summary call, the summary statement about prayer. Four times we see the word all. We see the word prayer twice, the word petition twice. So four alls and four prayers or petitions to help us understand the intensity and the urgency behind this and the disposition of the heart of the child of God that would be praying without ceasing from their heart. And beloved, what we will see this morning is in verses 19 and 20, we see Paul give three prayer requests. 
Basically, Paul is saying, pray for your pastor, pray for his preaching, and pray for his prowess. Someone once asked the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, what was the key to his great success in his preaching? And he replied simply, my people pray for me. Now, having said that, if you're visiting here this morning, you might be scratching your head, saying, you know, I was invited here. We, we see all the Christmas accoutrements. We just had this magnificent, beautiful Christmas carols from the children. We're heading towards Christmas, and then all this pastor is preaching about is praying for himself. Well, if you came here looking for a Christmas message in particular, you'll have to come back next week. But that's the beauty of expositional preaching, verse by verse. We take it as it comes. If I had pulled this out and cherry-picked this for this particular time, I would think that your bewilderment might be in order. But that's what we do here as we go verse by verse. So next week will be a special Christmas message. But here we are blessed to just continue what God has before us in Ephesians 6, verses 19 and 20. So having said that, and by the way, the child of God armed with the word of God brings it to bear without equivocation, without apology, whether it's from the pulpit, whether it's in a Bible hour class, in a home group, or in a coffee shop across the table bringing the good news of the forgiveness of sin which is made possible by God himself coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. So the first prayer request that we see in verses 19 through 20, Paul says, pray for your pastor. R.C. Sproul said, if you trust in yourself, then you stand by yourself. Paul was mature enough, he was wise enough to understand that he could not trust in himself. He understood that very well. He's wise enough and humble enough to ask for prayer. And that's why we see at the beginning of verse 19, and pray on my behalf, literally, and on my behalf. Depending on your translation, you might see the word pray there, pray there in italics. That tells us that it was added by the translators. So what this means is this is a continuation of what we saw back in verse 18 where he says, praying at all times. We're praying at all times. So this is a continuation of that prayer, of laying out. And even that praying back in verse 18 ties us to the armor of God that he had delineated in verses 14 through 17. It is Paul telling us that we need to lay out the measure to effectively take up, put on, and keep on the armor of God through prayer and prayerfully. And especially even the sword of the spirit, which was the last element of the armor and the first and only weapon. So the subject here, again, is prayer. And Paul opens up his letter not just with the great doctrines of grace, but he opens up his prayer by twice praying for the Ephesians. Now he wraps up this letter by asking for his beloved Ephesian believers to pray for him. And he's done this elsewhere, does this elsewhere in Colossians 4 verse 3. In Colossians 1, Paul opens up with a prayer for the Colossians, for a church he'd never been to before. And then in Colossians 4 verse 3, verse 3 he says, praying at the same time for us as well. Or in 1 Thessalonians 525, brethren, pray for us. So Paul would pray for the church to whom he was writing, and he would also solicit, ask for their prayers on his behalf and on the behalf of his compatriots. Now, 
Beloved, when we're considering this praying for your pastor, jump to the beginning of verse 20, because Paul also describes and elaborates of two roles in his capacity as a pastor. Namely, so when you think of praying for your pastor, you understand that your pastor is an ambassador and is a prisoner. And in Paul's case, it was a very literal sense on the second one. The first role that we see at the beginning of verse 20 of Paul is an ambassador. He is a herald. He is a messenger. He is a bearer of good news. Any faithful pastor is that as well. Paul says, I am an ambassador. I am an ambassador. It's interesting, it, the am an ambassador, that's one word that's actually a verb in the original Greek. It's the verb form of the Greek word presbyteros, from which we get presbytery, or an elder. And the only other appearance of the verb form of that word is when Paul wrote his second letter to the church in Corinth in 5 verse 20 when he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. But the imagery, the point that Paul is bringing out here was in his day, at the time of this writing, an ambassador was a man who would travel to a territory. It could be a foreign territory. It could be a territory of a kingdom with a message representing the king who sent him. He could be an ambassador. It could be an ambassador to a mighty empire like to the Roman Empire, or it could be to a small city or village. But the ambassador represented the king, and the king wouldn't send timid, mealy-mouthed, tongue-tied men to be his ambassadors. He would send a loyal man who'd speak on his behalf without hesitation or equivocation. The ambassador, a faithful ambassador of the king, wasn't one who would speak to suit his own purposes or feather his own nest. He wouldn't seek to modify or adjust the message based on his own personal opinions or prejudices. So, beloved, when the Apostle Paul writes this letter to this beloved church in Ephesus, it's not the voice of a mere man. It is the voice of God with God's authority. And that is what demands their attention. The faithful pastor today isn't an apostle like Paul. Pastors don't receive direct revelation from God. God has given us everything in the pages of Scripture pertaining to life and godliness. But a faithful pa pastor today is a man who speaks God's voice with God's authority when he speaks from the word of God. And his words carry the weight of heaven, bringing both brokenness over sin and redemption from the bondage of sin. The Welsh pastor Jeff Thomas said this, quote, Luther was God's ambassador to Germany. Calvin spoke to the city of Geneva. Knox addressed Scotland. Whitfield traversed England and America. Wesley said the world was his parish. Today's preachers must never slip into the frame of mind that they're chaplains of some private religious club. We need men who will break the mold and face the entire communities in the name of God, conscious that the creator has made them his heralds to speak to the whole cosmos on his behalf, end quote. So, beloved, that's the first role that Paul addresses in his capacity as pastor. The second role that Paul addresses in his capacity as pastor is prisoner. 
He is, the pastor is a slave of Christ, a man in bondage, or literally look at verse 20, a man in chains. Literally a man in a change, it's singular. And the letter to the Ephesians is what's called a prison epistle, along with Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. Paul wrote this letter from his first Roman imprisonment around AD 61 while under house arrest for two years. And we've already seen this as we've been going through Ephesians. In chapter 3, verse 1, and in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. But he uses, he pivots and uses different language here talking about his chain. He is literally chained to a Roman guard, to a Roman soldier. And how fitting it is for Paul as an ambassador, as a herald, as a representative of Jesus Christ to wear this iron chain. Because Paul's master, Paul's Lord was despised and rejected of men. His crown, Christ's crown, was made of thorns. His throne was a cross on that side of his first coming. Paul, beloved, stands as Jesus' representative. So chains are, or a chain, is the appropriate adornment he must wear. And this is what good Dr. Luke records for us. Paul began this Roman imprisonment at the end of the Acts of the Apostle, at the end of Acts in chapter 28. In verse 20, Luke says, for this reason, recording the words of Paul, Paul is addressing the local Jewish leaders in Rome when he initially went into this Roman imprisonment. And Paul says to the local leaders of the Jews in Rome, for this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And one last thing to observe here, back in Ephesians chapter 6, when we consider the role of ambassador and prisoner, Paul may even be using a play on words here because some ambassadors in Paul's day would wear a golden chain of honor, this big kind of necklace golden chain which would identify them as an ambassador, a man of great re- repute, a man to be respected and honored. And what a beautiful contrast it is. And again, it could be Paul's play on words saying, look at my chain as not just a prisoner of Christ, but even as an ambassador of Christ. And beloved, by Way of application, take note. We who bear the name of Christ, we cannot whine, whimper, or complain if real chains are ever put upon us. I was considering this. In March, 25 men from Santan Bible Church will be blessed to go together to the Shepherds Conference. And one of the speakers that we will be blessed to hear is Pastor James Coates. He's a pastor up in Edmonton, Canada, the pastor of Grace Life Church there. Pastor Coates didn't whine, whimper, or complain when they put handcuffs on him and led him to jail for 35 days away from his family. Beloved, so also, should the day come for us where we ever have to have physical chains, let us do it with joy and trust in the Lord. But even if we would think of our figurative spiritual chains, beloved, our chains are our credentials. They show that we follow the true Christ, that we're outcasts, that we're aliens in this world, that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. 
And we know that as we read through Ephesians that God gives us commands and instruction and encouragement how to live as a citizen of Gilbert and of Arizona and of the United States of America, but in the backdrop and coming from and flowing from the greater ultimate citizenship that we enjoy in heaven. May God give us courage to be ready for those physical change should they ever come. Set before us, Lord, him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Bless us, Lord, with a poverty of spirit, a mourning over sins, a hunger for righteousness, and a purity of heart, even as it characterized the Apostle Paul. And as my heart was in continued preparation and my mind was in continued preparation for handling of this text here this morning and the wonderful men's breakfast that we had yesterday. It was, we were singing the beautiful hymn, O Holy Night, verse 2, which the beginning of it reads, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. And the third line, Christ shall he break, or excuse me, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. Beloved, should we ever put on the physical chain that will ultimately be broken by Christ, and not just the physical chain as we go into eternity, but the chain right now, the wall of division and separation between Jew and Gentile, between black, white, and red, between old and young, male and female, between rich and poor, in the one reconciled new humanity that God forms in his body in the family of Christ. When Pompeii was destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, when they began some thousand years later to begin to uncover the ruins, they found different people in all kinds of different locations and in different positions. They found some people down in kind of in deep chambers where perhaps they went for protection. They found rich people that were entombed in lofty chambers. They found a Roman soldier standing at attention in the position in which his commanding officer had placed him, still holding on to his weapon. While the earth shook beneath him, while the floods of ashes and cinders rained down and overwhelmed him, he stood at his post. And some thousand years later, he was found, frozen for all time in his fidelity of duty. Beloved, may that be us as we would seek to pray without ceasing, to pray for God's glory and adoration to God and confession of our sin and thanksgiving for all the joys and blessings God gives us and for supplication, for petition, for requests to God on behalf of one another. And by the way, even when we think of this, when we think of, again, the mighty apostle Paul, we are reminded that the mighty apostle, the pastor, the elders, don't fly above the events of life. And if the apostle Paul needed prayer on his behalf, even as God was carrying him along, how much more so do I need your prayer? How much more so do we all need the prayer of one another in this mighty battle? Beloved, pray for me. Pray for your elders and leaders. The second prayer request, Paul says, pray for your pastor, specifically pray for your pastor's preaching. Now, Paul, a prisoner of Rome, doesn't request prayer for emancipation. He requests prayer for empowerment. Uh, I mean, get me out of here. How much more effective can I be if I'm not confined and trapped in this Roman prison? 
But that is not what he says. He says, pray for me, verse 19, continuing, that, so that, this is a purpose statement, so that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. And by the way, what you'll see here in verses 19 and 20, you, you will see two purpose statements, the little word that or, or so that. And basically what Paul's saying here is he wants empowerment. He wants, he's praying for his preaching. Pray for my preaching. Pray for my prowess. Pray for my clarity. Pray for my courage. That is Paul's heart. That is where he is focused. And it's interesting, Paul, when he says, pray that the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, Paul's not praying for an increase in eloquence. He's not asking to have his vocabulary base broaden. Paul understands, he knows that it's one thing to say something. Anybody can say something. It's an entirely different matter to have something to say. And beloved, you and I have something to say to a lost and dying world at any point, any month of year, on any date of the year, and certainly no less than here even in this Christmas season. Beloved, Paul doesn't ask for prayer for an unchained wrist. He asks for prayer for an unchained tongue. He wants freedom of the gospel, not freedom of self. He wants to say the right thing in the right way at the right time without inhibition. He prays, he asks for prayer for liberty of his speech, not liberty of his person. And in verse 19, the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, he continues, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Beloved, Paul's all-consuming passion was to make Christ known. And he understand there is a right way and a wrong way to share the good news. Augustus Strong was a late 19th century, early 20th century seminary professor. And he said, one of the proofs of the Bible being divine is that it's withstood so many years of bad preaching. You see, beloved, Paul understood the power of good preaching. Paul understood that good preaching, whatever that might be, comes from God. 2 Corinthians 3, our adequacy comes from Christ. God has chosen, 1 Corinthians, God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. Not many mighty, not many wise, but the simplest man, the most simple woman in terms of ministering to other women, ministering in evangelism, is mighty when armed with the sword of the Spirit. And wherever Paul has, he has this all-consuming passion to make Jesus Christ known. That's why for example, when he wrote to the Colossian church, in kind of the companion letter of uh, Colossians to Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 3 through 4 in Colossians, Paul says, praying at the same time for us as well, I read that before, so that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been in prison, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. It's the same heart cry that Paul issues to the Colossians as he does to the Ephesians. Now, in both of these cases, we can ask the question, wanting to be good students and understand the background here, what audience is Paul thinking of here? I mean, right now, there in that prison, he's got a pretty limited congregation. But beloved, that didn't matter to Paul. It didn't matter if it was one soldier, two soldiers, 
or if it was kings and queens. Paul's heart cry was always the same. He wants utterance to bring the good news. And by the way, does God answer prayers? Simple, straightforward answer, of course, he always answers prayers. Maybe yes, maybe no, maybe something different, maybe wait. There's different dynamics. Of course, God always answers the prayers of his children in Christ. In Paul's case, we know one, at least one tangible answer to that in the case of a fugitive slave named Onesimus that was saved by virtue of Paul's proclamation of the utterance that was given to him as his mouth was opened to make known the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God put life where there was no life before in the heart of this runaway slave named Onesimus. Martin Luther said, I preach as though Christ were crucified yesterday, rose again from the dead today, and is coming again tomorrow. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, said, I preach as though never sure to preach again, as a dying man to dying men. Beloved, we have the solemn responsibility in preaching to be clear and accurate. That's why God said through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? And beloved, How is this done? How is this clarity achieved? How is in the frailty of the not many mighty, not many noble, how does a man preach the word of God with clarity? Through study. There's tremendous essential value in the pastor working through the biblical text each week. Not pillaring sermons off the web. Not only must the pastor shepherd and feed God's sheep, he must also be personally transformed by the word himself so that he may prove to be an example to the flock, as Peter brings out in 1 Peter 5, 3. And by the way, in case you're wondering, uh, and this is kind of in the context of some recent news over the last several months, but my sermon prep team is me, myself, and I. My beloved Margie's in heaven, and she was never much part of that other than to make sure that I keep my nose to the grindstone. Beloved, one man said in the context of prayer, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It's not surprising when prayer malfunctions, when we make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs to have more comfort in the den. Beloved, God has given us prayer so that we can call our commander for everything We need in this holy war as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Beloved, pray for me. Pray for clarity in my preaching. There's a third request. Pray for your pastor. Pray for his preaching. Pray for his prowess in the pulpit. We need men of prowess in the pulpit. Uh, Prowess, superior ability, skill, or strength. Exceptional valor and bravery, especially the word in combat or battle. So pray for your pastor's clarity. Pray for his courage. Daryl Harrison said this, speaking of the current climate in the Western world, maybe in the Eastern world, but certainly in the Western world. He said, it's amazing to me that so many people view living in fear as a virtue while not living in fear as callous. Owen Strachan said, terrible times are when men of courage do their best work. Beloved, 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a soft gospel. It's not a milquetoast, namby-pamby gospel. It is a radical gospel. And the church won't be, the visible church, won't be the salt of the earth when the gospel's sugar-coated. My beloved Margie, some of you may remember me sharing this before. My beloved Margie loved the phrase that soft preaching produces hard hearts, but hard preaching produces softened hearts. Beloved, we need brave men, bold men, men of valor. No man who fears man, no man who fears man should step in the pulpit. And that takes us to the second purpose statement in verse 20. He says that, so that in proclaiming it, so that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, you saw the word boldness as a noun back in verse 19. We see it as a verb, speak boldly here in verse 20. The word, whether it's the noun or the verb for boldness or boldly, originally came from the freedom of speech enjoyed by Greek citizens. Over time, it came to mean courage, confidence, boldness, fearlessness. It came to describe an open plainness of speech that conceals nothing and passes over nothing, especially in the presence of high, persons of high rank and authority when danger is a possibility. It's a fearless attitude that's open and clear in the face of danger. So what Paul is saying here is even though he is a man in chains, Paul wants the courage to speak as a free man with no restraint. God's answer, again getting to another answer, a tangible answer of God's prayer, we go back to what we read partly before from Luke in Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, Luke tells us that he, Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters in prison. This is his first Roman imprisonment. And was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. With all openness. And it's the same Greek word that is the root word for openness in Acts 28.31, as we see in boldness and speaking boldly in Ephesians chapter 6. Beloved, we need, bringing these together, the clarity and the courage, the clarity and the boldness, we need both. A pastor needs both clarity and boldness. A preacher can't be marked by muddled speech or cowardly compromise. And clarity without boldness is cowardice. Boldness without clarity is foolishness. Yet, Paul does place the priority in the utterance. The order is important here. He places the priority in the utterance before the boldness, the priority in the clarity before the courage. In the same way, you as Christians, we all need wisdom and zeal. We need them both, but there is an order there as well. We need God's wisdom. We need the fear of the Lord is a beginning of knowledge and wisdom, a beginning of understanding. So we need the wisdom of the word of God to channel our zeal. Or if we have no zeal, to light a fire under our rear ends to get us going. The Reformed Baptist preacher Al Mohler said this. People know, and he's speaking in a sense to pastors, to a preacher. He says, people know when you can be bought by their smiles and beaten by their frowns. You're never free to be an instrument of blessing to your people unless you're free from the effects of their smiles and the effects 
of their frowns. Such a man, Pastor Martin continues, such a man is free in Christ. That is how God takes not many mighty and not many noble to bring the word of God. Beloved, pray for me. Pray for clarity and courage in my preaching. And taking it back, even as it is grammatically connected with the armor of the Lord, the last one being the sword of the Spirit. Beloved, pray that I would be a master swordsman for the Lord, for his glory, for your blessing and joy, for our blessing and joy. Fifty years ago, when the magazine Christianity Today was Christianity Today rather than Christianity Astray, as it is today, there was an article that appeared, Preach As You Go. And the author of the article said these words, and he was lamenting the state of the lack of education and understanding and command, not of science or marketing or business, but of the word of God issuing from the pulpit. He said, the author said, there was a time about three generations ago when the minister was the best educated man in the community. And he ranked with the physician and the pedagogue and the lawyer in eminence. But over our time, it's seen a complete switch in this situation. The minister is now close to the bottom of the listings in educated persons. Now, Our reaction as Christians to this turn of events should have been a determined and disciplined effort to regain and maintain superior excellence in the things which pertain to God. Instead, the clergy has retreated in a mad scramble behind the breastplate of administrative detail, ecclesiastical trivia, and community vagrancy. And then he says, what's the resolution of this ridiculous farce? And beloved, I'm going to close out by reading an extended quote of what his answer was. And what he is doing is he's basically using hyperbolic language to describe the end goal. He says, make him a minister of the word. And I'm laying this out to you to understand this is the kind of end goal that even the apostle Paul has for himself when he was asking for the prayers of the Ephesians. And so this is what the author said regarding what the answer is to that situation for the pastor. Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before holy God and holy text and broken hearts and a superficial flock. That doesn't apply to you guys. Force him to be the one man in our overgorged community who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever from spouting remarks and stop his tongue forever from tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit. And make him preach the word of the living God. 
test him, quiz him, examine him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine, shame him for his good comprehension of finances, batting averages, and political infighting, laugh at his frustrated efforts to play psychiatrist, form a choir, and raise a chant, and haunt him with it night and day, sir, we would see Jesus. When at long last he dares assay the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he doesn't, dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper, digest the television commentaries, think through the day's superficial problems, and bless the sordid baked potatoes and green beans better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus saith the Lord. Break him across the board of his ill gotten popularity, smack him hard with his own prestige, corner him with questions about God, cover him with demands for celestial wisdom, and give him no escape until he's backed against the wall of the Word of God. And then sit down before him and listen to the only word he has has left, God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip. Give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come at last to speak it backward and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. And... When he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, and finally, when he himself is transferred from earth to heaven, then bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly. Place a two-edged sword in his coffin and raise the tomb triumphant, for He was a brave soldier of the word, and ere he died, he had become a man of God, end quote. Beloved, that is the end game. That is the goal of the Apostle Paul. That's the goal of your prayers for me, of your prayers for your leaders. That was what led Paul to say, again, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Beloved, I need your prayers. You need my prayers. We need each other's prayers. And that is the Christian, excuse me, that is the Christmas message. God came down to earth as a baby so that in part we can go up to him. He ripped the veil from top to bottom so that you and I can go to him. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Please pray with me. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for your holiness. We thank you that there is your judgment for sin, and we praise you and are eternally grateful, Lord God, for providing a way of escape. We praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sinless, perfect life, for your perfect obedience, for your perfect demonstrations of authority over disease and death and God's creation and sin itself. We praise you and thank you for your birth, for your life, for your death, for your resurrection, for your ascension to the right hand 
of the Father. Thank you, Lord God, that we can come to you in our frailty with praises and confessions and thanksgivings and petitions. Thank you for hearing our prayers and always answering the prayers of your children according to your perfect will. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray now and that we sing, that we fellowship, that we do all these things. Amen.